Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Quarteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are recording. Back again. Here we are. What month is it now? February? Almost not, right? We're getting close to the end of February. Not close I enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a rough month, even though it's the shortest one. But we we have an extra day of it this year because it's leap year. So fun, right? It's good, though, because the extra day is a Thursday, which means we get an extra paycheck this month, which is <laughs> fun. We do? Yeah, we do. Oh, my gosh. Don't spend it all in one place. Yeah, well, that's exciting. All right. Well, there's something to look forward to, right? Something. So we're back. Um, everybody looks good. Everybody looks ready to go. So that was Bill Sutton that you heard opening up the podcast there. Hiya, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also with us is Brendan J. O'Reilly. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor. And Joe Shaw is back with his headphones. Is this week two for you attempting this? It is. I'm trying to see if, see if it sounds better. Yeah. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express Newsroom. may not look better, but it definitely sounds pretty good. Now, it doesn't look great, but... Uh... Well, it's an interesting combo with the wool cap there, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice and warm. He's like a Canadian hockey announcer. He's, 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 he's going for his Andy Reid look here, I think. Right? So. <laughs> I can pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I would then Hinkle on the Arts and Living Editor, the Express News Group. And we also have two very special guests today. And the first is Steve Coates, our um, our esteemed reporter, who's back yeah. again with us. Hey, Steve. Good morning. Wow, he's got a lot to say. And also with us today's very special guest, State Assemblyman Fred W. Thiel Jr. from Sag Harbor, who um, has represented the first districts um, for a very, very long time. And Fred's got some changes coming up in his career this year. And that's why we thought we'd have Fred on to talk about that. Hey, Fred. You could have, you could have stopped at the first very, I would have been fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah. Thanks. Good to see it. Good to see you all. So what is it? You're coming up on 30 years with this job? Yeah, it uh, was elected, you know, 15 elections, but, you know, the first election was a special. So I didn't start to March. So I'll be a couple of months short of 30 years. Wow. I got to ask you, Fred, how does that stack up um, against the longest tenured assemblyman um, in Albany? Are you are you one of the longer? Because, I mean, there's a lot of assemblymen with fairly long tenures, right? Yeah, I, I guess one way I could describe it is, you know, when you when you start, you you know, you get your New York State Assembly license plate, right? And and the, the license plates are roughly according to seniority. There's a couple of you know leadership things in there that disrupt that, but you know, I, I think when I started, because again, there, there's more. Uh, I, I think it was you know, it was 150. It was, you know, New York 150. Now I'm New York 16. So uh, I've I've moved up the charts. But I, I, I think there's probably, you know, again, 
that, that isn't a perfect measure, but there's, there may be eight or nine or 10 members that have been there longer than I have. Uh, you know, uh, two years ago, uh, Assemblyman Godfrey, Dick Godfrey from Manhattan, um, retired, and he had been there for 50 years. He, he came oh, wow. in in 1972, uh, and he, he may have been the longest serving member of the State Assembly in history, but you know, there's uh, uh, our president pro tem of the assembly, uh, Jeff Aubrey, who's whose dad, when he was alive, actually lived in Sag Harbor. He's from he's from Queens. He's retiring this year. He's been there a few more years than than I have, and uh, so I, yeah, I'm I'm pretty close to the top of seniority. But there's uh, there are several that have been there longer than I have. So was there something about this year that made you say, okay, now is the time to get out? Like, was it, you know, had you been, I guess you'd been thinking about this for the last few cycles. Yeah. I you know, I, I've been asked that question, you know, is it the, uh, you know, the, the, the way politics has kind of degenerated, how polarized things are, how, you know, kind of angry the climate is, was that part of my decision? And, you know, I, the answer is no, it wasn't any part of my decision. If anything, that might've encouraged me to, to keep working to see if there's any chance to change that. It was, you know, for me, I think it was just the right time in the, the last couple of, you know, election cycles, you know, it wasn't automatic. It was something I really, really needed to think about. And, you know, this, you know, especially I think for me coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to complain too much. You know, a million people died in the pandemic and there was a lot of hardship out there. Uh, but if you were an elected official, it was, you know, a grind uh, the, the last few years. And, you know, I, I think there's a correlation also between that and the fact that every town supervisor and every county legislator representing the East End is new. Uh, you know, some of that was term limits, but, you know, the, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a difficult job the last couple of years. So I, I think that was a factor. But you know, the bottom line is, you know, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I've been there for 30 years. Uh, there's still other things I want to be able to do, you know, even in the area of, of public policy and, and, you know, community issues that I, that I still want to be able to do. And this just seemed like a good time to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I've been in the assembly for 30 years and it reminds me, uh, Joe knows I like to use football analogies, but you know, Woody Hayes used to say, you know, he used to run the ball 95% of the time and they'd ask him why he didn't like to pass. He says, well, when you pass the ball, there's three things that can happen and two of them are bad, right? I mean, they can be intercepted or it's incomplete. And, you know, sitting in the assembly, you know, all these years watching people come and go, there's three ways to leave the assembly and two of them are bad, you know, either <laughs> yeah. by the ballot box or the criminal justice system, you know, that happens in Albany. So, you know, I, I wanted to be able to leave, you know, on my own terms, you know, I, I felt, you know, maybe it's always better to leave a year too early than a year too late. And, you know, for me personally, it just felt like the right time. I gotta say though, in, Fred, in any objective evaluation, having lost Senator Laval, uh, to retirement and now losing you. I mean, I think that's going to be something like 70 years of experience in Albany that the, the region is losing. That That's that's going to be a problem. I mean, I, I think uh, Anthony Palumbo has stepped into Senator Laval's seat, but we're going to be, we're going to have two representatives in Albany 
who are uh, freshmen, basically, or very, very uh, new to the job. And, and that changes uh, the way the, the East End is represented in, in Albany, doesn't it? Well, I, it does in a way. And listen, I, I think, you know, it's not so much that seniority matters, but relationships matter, networks matter, you know, the ability to get things done. It's a people business and, you know, having developed relationships and trust with people over the year, over the years certainly helps you get things done, you know, and, uh, you know, so that is clearly the case. But I also remember back to when I was a, you know, a, a first termer and, uh, you know, every, everybody has to start somewhere. And, you know, if you're going to represent this area, which I, I think expects activism from their elected officials, if you don't have that experience and that seniority and those those networks, you got to make it up. With, you can't be passive. You have to make it up with by by being, uh, you know, an aggressive advocate for the area. And so I, I think, it, it, you know, it takes a while to develop those relationships. And I suspect that whoever replaces me in the assembly is going to be somebody that you know that that doesn't know Albany all that well, and perhaps you know it doesn't it may have some experience in in you know local government but a lot but not a lot you know I, I think that person is going to have to be uh is is going to have to make up for that lack of experience with a lot of hard work and by be by being aggressive in in pursuing you know the region's interests because you know that to me that's the way to offset it and uh um, you know, listen, you know, these transitions happen, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's it my, certainly my turn for that here. And as I keep telling, you know, I, this has kind of been like an out of body experience this week. I, I feel like I'm like, attending my own wake in a way, <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm not dead and I'm not going anywhere. And, and certainly, you, you know, uh, you know, I in, intend to still be part of of uh, the community discussion. You're going to get to do it all over again in, in December when 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 the time finally arrives and everybody's going to going to want to say goodbye again. Yeah, I, I guess. But listen, you know, I'm going to be there to to, to continue to help, uh, you know, whoever my successor is, regardless of 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 who wins, what political party. So, you know, we'll, we'll make a good transition. Do you have any concerns about certain areas that you've made advances in backsliding once you're no longer in that seat? Um, any areas in particular, Brendan, that you're... you're... Well, you think about things like, you, you know, the CPF isn't going anywhere because it's written into law, but you've made advances in, in preservation. A lot of work went into affordable housing. Now that's there, but you might get a different assemblyman in who's maybe not in favor of the community housing fund, or maybe just doesn't want to continue the things that took you in some cases, decades to accomplish. I, I would say that with, you know, the, you know, the policy issues, things like the CPF or housing or things of that nature, you know, they're established and the public likes them. I don't think they're going anywhere. As you said, uh, it, it's the projects that I've gotten started that, that, that aren't finished. 
you know, and no matter when you retire or when you leave or don't run for reelection, you know, there's always something that's not finished, right? So, you know, two of those for me, one would be the South Fork commuter connection, which I think was a, a good first step at public transit. You know, we've got the Long Island Railroad in the position where they've uh, uh, identified a project, a $260 million infrastructure project to provide more service. You know, we need to get that into the capital budget of the MTA this fall. You know, that that I, I hope whoever takes my place, that that is a, a priority. Uh, so, that, you know, certainly that's one. And, and you know, the campus is the other, uh, Southampton. You know, we're, you know, we're finally, I think, and I think thanks in no small measure to uh, that express sessions that you had a couple of weeks back, kind of getting Stony Brook out here and putting their feet to the fire. I, I think, you know, Wendy Pearson, I think, has made a good first impression, you know, from Stony Brook at the campus. You know, I think things are starting to move. So, you know, those are the kinds of things where you, you know, not so much, a, you know, a, a policy or that, but, you know, some of some of these projects, and those would be two that I would identify. You know, I, I think they're, they're high, you know, those are things I've led on, but I think they'll be high priorities, you know, for other elected officials here. And, you know, I, I think it's really important that those things move forward and hopefully they do. So, you know, right before we came on the air, we were taught you touched on the cannabis um, legislation and the new law. I wondered if you could expound on that a little bit and how that's working out. We had done a podcast a couple of weeks ago about how things were kind of rolling out with that and just would be interested to get your take on if you think it went, you know, is going smoothly. Are you happy with the way that the law is written and what the early um reaction is to how it's being implemented around the state? Well, I, I, I think I can say without any reservation that the Titanic had a better rollout than cannabis has had in New York State. Um, you know, the, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the state regular authority, uh, you know, the, the cannabis board has been really slow to, to roll this out. You know, in New York City in particular, but really everywhere, there are illegal shops basically everywhere. A lot of farmers got hurt, including the Shinnecocks, who, you know, basically there was product out there that basically, you know, went to waste. It, it, it's it been awful, I think. And, you know, I, I, I voted against this, not, you know, I'm, I was I, want, I was certainly for decriminalization. People shouldn't be going to jail for possessing marijuana. I, I've supported medical marijuana. I did not support that legislation because I feared, uh, you know, looking at the bill that what is happening is what would happen. Uh, and, you know, I, I talked about the, the, the role when we were when we were doing the cannabis bill, we were always also doing the issue about whether or not, you know, we would outlaw, you know, plastic bags. And so, you know, the, the story I told in conference was, you know, it was then 50 years ago, I was in college, it was the first time that I had seen marijuana was when I was in college, and it was in a plastic bag. I didn't imagine that 50 years later, the cannabis would be legal, the plastic bags would, would be what would be illegal, right? And uh, so so times do change. But, but, you know, the rollout on that has been very bad. I know the governor's got several proposals in the budget where, you know, she's trying to, to correct some of the problems, but it's been a disaster, I think, so far. And, uh, you, know, it, 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 you know, you hope that, you know, sometimes the bent wagon wheel is never round again, right? And, and uh, 
So we'll see. I, I know that that we, there's going to be some efforts to try to to fix some of these things. I I think you know getting rid of the illegal shops. You know, there's no incentive to do this legally if you're not going to enforce it against uh, you know the the illegal shops and and uh, you know it's there's been confusion on the local government level. You know, some some have opted out, some are in, and you know I think it's been a mess. And the state's losing all the potential revenue at the same time. That, that, yes, that, that was, was you know, and that revenue was built into these fu future budgets and. You know, some of that is part of the out-year budget gaps that I, I think we're facing. Mm -hmm. Fred, you mentioned the, the the need for activist legislators locally. And I think it's fair to say that in addition to what you do in Albany for the region, you're just kind of considered a thought leader when it comes to, you know, I, I, when we sit in express sessions events, uh, your name comes up all the time because I think everybody sort of says, well, we, we need to talk to Fred Thiel about that. And I think some of that is to see what you can do in Albany, but some of it is also just to help lead the conversation. Whoever replaces you is going to have to be able to step into that role too, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, we spent six months in Albany and we're six months at home and you know quite frankly in many ways what what you do at home is really really important i think one of the advantages i had was that i came from local government so i'd been a county legislator been a a, a town supervisor been a village attorney you know i I'd worked on that level and and kind of know what other elected officials are, are going through and you know my, my law a lot of my the law work that i i, I have done which has been a lot less because I'm, you know, most time is taken up with elected, being an elected official. But a lot of the work that I did was with local community groups and not-for-profits and environmental stuff. So, I, you know, I worked with all of them. So I had had those relationships before I went to Albany. You know, I, I kind of know what they do and what they're going through. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, 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 there's a lot that I do behind the scenes that really kind of, uh, you know, it's been as a, you know, advisor to, you know, community groups and, and, you know, local, local not-for-profits and local governments. So, you know, that's, that's a role that I also think probably comes with experience and years and developing trust, but uh, you got to start somewhere. So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a role that, uh, you know, you, you have to earn, you know, it's not something that is part of the job description, but, you know, I, I think that's an important part of the job also. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Porteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. 
So can I ask a question about the community housing fund? Just wondering, you know, talking about let's let's ask Fred Thiel. What do you think is the best use for that kind that money that's coming into that fund? And and how do you think that this might really be used to solve an issue out here or at least start to solve an issue out here? Yeah, you know, and and, you know, the money is just really starting to roll in. you know, it, it was effective. The, the referendum was a year ago, November. It went into effect on April 1st, but pre-existing contracts were grandfathered that were entered in before April 1st. So, you know, by August, you know, it was still generating, you know, you, you still were in the position where more than half the transactions were were uh, were exempt from the tax, but we were, you, you work, you know, that works its way through the system. So, you know, and talking to the towns, you know, they're starting to generate, you know, the monthly revenue they anticipated. So, you know, it's time to get get going. And, I, and, and I, I, you know, Joe and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. And I frankly think that the towns have been a little slow in, in, in the rollout of the community housing fund. I attribute some of that to the fact that all five town supervisors uh, you know, we're did not, you know, we're not running for re-election and you're in this transition period. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, the money is, is starting to be meaningful. We have new, uh, uh, new town supervisors who I hope this will be part of, you know, a major part of their agenda. I think it's important to get, you know, some, some of this out the door quickly and start having some successes. And I think the best way to do that, you know, all these projects have a, you know, they have a, 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 a uh, you know, several years from from soup to nuts to get them done. So, you know, you, you, you know, you should be looking at those. But I think things like first time home buyer assistance, getting that up and running, uh, you know, the state has a program that can match this too. But accessory dwelling units, getting your code shaped up so you're removing the impediments and roadblocks to ADUs. I think that's two places where you could make a, you know, you could start to make a difference quickly would be with ADUs and with financial assistance to first time home buyers. You know, projects that require infrastructure improvements that require the building of new units, you know, those take longer, Um, you know, utilizing some of the funds also to, you know, get covenants and restrict affordability covenants and restrictions on existing housing. Those are things that I think could be done quickly. So I would put those three things at the top, ADUs, first-time homebuyer assistance, and acquiring affordability covenants and restrictions uh, for existing dwellings. You know, that is something that I think where you could show progress pretty quickly. I think a couple of the concerns or hesitations that people have with ADUs is they're not quite clear on what the restrictions will be. and, And sometimes they'll hear about those restrictions and be turned off like, if you build an ADU, you have to agree to rent it for below market rate. That's correct, right? Well, it's up to each town to do that, but you know, the idea is that they be affordable. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, some people are happy to do that to have their kids live with them. But then, as soon as their kids move out, you know, when I say kids, I mean like adults that want to have their own kitchens and their own space and in, in their parents' house you know, the whole idea behind an ADU, but they don't want to live with a stranger and they don't want the town to tell them like, you're only allowed to live with these people. Um, The other concern with ADUs, I think is you can't rent out your house, 
period, if you have an ADU tenant. I heard a story um, that this couple bought a house that had a pre-existing legal ADU, but then they found out that in order for them to keep the ADU, they can't rent their house out in August and come back in September because then the primary home is no longer owner-occupied for 12 months a year. So that just took an ADU off the table. They had it removed. The tenant was out because they lost their ability to rent their house out in August. And I, I understand that part of the purpose of ADUs is to help year-round locals um, afford their own homes. You know, you add an ADU, you're getting an extra revenue source, and now, now you can afford to stay yourself, not just the tenant that you're providing for. But even the year-round locals might like to rent out the house for two weeks or for a month and not lose the ability to have an ADU to do something like that. And I know that's not you know, the state's fault, it's local municipalities that have to come up with this. But I wonder why ADUs have, haven't been more successful thus far. Well, I mean, there's two two reasons. One is I think, you know, the codes have made it too difficult. And second, even if the codes allow it, you've got to get you've got to get homeowners to come through the door. And and I think it's a combination of revising the local codes and providing incentives to homeowners to participate. And, and, and you're right, Brent, it's not going to be for everybody. Not everybody wants a, a sex, a, an accessory dwelling with a, with a stranger in it. Uh, but, it, you know, it does provide for opportunities. And, and you, you know, you've, you've got, a, you know, a lot of di different circumstances. I, I think, you know, the first step is, you know, the, the existing codes in a lot of places are just too cumbersome for people to try to get through the process. And, you know, that's number one. And, you know, the, the idea, you know, the state program is, is capital funding to help construct ADUs. And I think that's the second thing is, uh, is making it enticing for homeowners to do. And, and so, you know, listen, there's some work to be done there, uh, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, that, that can be addressed, I think, quicker than, having to acquire a new piece of property and developing a project and going through secret and getting the funding, you know, if you wait to use your money, all your money for that, you're not going to see any new housing for three, four, maybe five years. And I don't think that's acceptable. You know, it's interesting. Brendan and I were in a room recently with a lot of real estate folks for an express sessions event. And as always, I think the conversation turned to affordable housing and, it was an interesting dynamic that in a room full of people who make their living selling houses and selling high-end houses makes more money. This was the primary topic of interest that that I think even the real estate industry is starting to uh, wake up to the idea that, you know, the, the conversation that we had is there almost is no local market anymore. Um if you're a local and, and you want to buy a house, the entry level is about seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, which is out of reach for most people. So one of the things we talked about and and, I, you know, uh, Jim LaRocca, the former mayor of Sag Harbor, was there and he challenged the, the real estate folks in the room. He said, you guys need to be more involved in affordable housing. You, he said, you know, I haven't heard a lot from that industry and nothing's going to happen unless the brain power in this room can can be brought to bear on the topic as well. Um, I, I just wonder if if you think there's you know 
I feel like there's almost going to have to be a new infrastructure created just to create affordable housing opportunities, that it's almost a parallel market to the regular market that exists out there. Because the regular market excludes um, all of the locals at this point. I don't think there's there's just when a house goes on the market now, it's lost as affordable housing because it's going generally to uh, um, someone who's going to buy it for part time. I would say. Yeah, and you're not just talking about homeowners, people that were homeowners here that have put their house on the market. The number of, you know, during it, you know, the pandemic, the number of people that had full-time year-round rentals here who had them sold out from under them, uh, you know, I, I, I was dealing with that issue in the office, you know, uh, on a regular basis. And, you know, those houses don't, you know, they not only are they sold out from under them, but, you know, the people that come in to move in, you know, it's not the affordable market. So, you know, to to the, the points that were raised here, I mean, I think the real estate industry does need to be, you know, part of this. I, You know, when we did the community housing fund, you know, you know, one of the things you do learn from experience is that go talk to all the stakeholders, um, you know, in, in putting a bill together. I wanted to make sure in Albany, I didn't run into opposition from the builders or the realtors because we're, you know, we're taxing an additional tax on real estate transactions. And, you know, I, there was almost indifference from the local real estate industry. Like it wasn't, well, this, it, it's not going to affect us, right? You know, we know already that the, the transfer tax hasn't really had an appreciable fate. It certainly hasn't been a deterrent to people buying houses here. Um, and, you know, they, they don't, you know, that's not, that's not a big part of their market, but I, I agree. Everybody's got to be part, I think of, of the discussion, you know, as far as the, 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 the solution. And, you know, we, we've, with the community housing fund, you know, we've got some resources to put towards this. You know, I, I put forth a few ideas about how I think we can get started. But, um, you know, it's going to require some creativity and some new ideas. The kind of new ideas we came up with the environment, the idea of, you know, we accept it now, but the idea of purchasing the development rights to farmland was a radical idea in 1975, you know. Um, so we're, we're going to have to think outside of the box, look at what some other regions are doing. There are other areas out there. Not all the wisdom and good ideas are here. Uh, one of the things I'd like to see the towns do is, is you know, uh, you know, bring, you know, have a seminar, bring some people, you know, with Zoom, you can do this now pretty easily. Bring people in from other parts of the country and see what they're doing. What can we borrow? What can we, what, what can we uh, learn from what they're doing? And, you know, and we, we should be sharing, you know, with, you know, the, the other resort areas, you know, you read these stories in the New York Times all the time, whether it's, you know, in Colorado or California of, you know, communities that are going through some of the same things. And that's part of what I think has been lacking on the East End, East End so far. You know, we've got this, this financial resource. Uh, we've got a couple of ideas how I think we can get it off the ground, but, we need to think outside the box and we need to look beyond ourselves, which I'm not sure we've done so far and how to implement this. Leaving a space for somebody else to step in. And this podcast proves Joe's point that eventually, no matter what we came on to discuss, 
It always comes back to affordable housing. It's every issue here. It really is. And and that was driven home. Like I said, uh, you know, we, Brendan and I were in that room. And Brendan, I don't know what your take on it was, but I was actually surprised that that Express Sessions event, which was ostensibly about the market, the real estate market as it stands today, that conversation turned into a conversation about affordable housing. And I kept wanting to bring it back around to the current market, but there was so much interest in continuing that conversation that we let it go. And, and I don't know, was there anything out of that that surprised you, Brendan, the, the conversation that we had? Well, I think the reason it kept coming back to affordable housing is because you have all these people who are real estate agents who have been out here doing it for years. They all have friends and their friends will come to them eventually and say, do you know of anything that my kids could buy or I could buy for my kids? And somebody said that they had a client who was willing to put down 500000 uh, as a down payment for their children so their children could afford a house. And the real estate agent still could not find their children something that they could afford with a $500,000 down payment from mom, from mom and dad on it. So when they're hearing that constantly, it's hard for them to ignore the problem like yes they want to sell big homes and get the larger commissions that come with that but they also know that in order to have a community you have to have opportunities for people who are going to fill the local jobs and who are going to be here in the winter and let's be honest it's like the success of the real estate market's largely what's gotten rid of all of our quote-unquote affordable homes i mean I have the pamphlet from when I, um, my husband and I bought our house in Northwest Woods and it's the prices are so quaint, you know, like the number of houses that were in that pamphlet that we could have afforded, you know, even not being particularly well off um, was pretty astounding. I, I got to, I'll have to pull that out and show it to you sometime. That was, well, I mean, you know, the proof of that when we set the, the, uh, the exemption amount for the community preservation fund in 1998 on the South Fork, it was $250,000 because that was the median price of a house right. in, in 1998. Yeah. You know, and we're way, way beyond What that was the now. median price now, Brendan, uh, that was mentioned? It depends on where you're looking. Are you looking at all Hamptons or east of the canal, west of the canal? Um, but I think it's like... I just, somebody used the, the figure 1.8 million, I think. Yeah, I think 1.8 is collectively. If you're just looking west of the canal, it's a little bit lower. If you're just looking east of the canal in Southampton, it's higher than 1.8. East Hampton's actually cheaper than eastern Southampton town. The the anecdotal story that one of the realtors told was about a six or 700 square foot house uh, in North Sea, which used to be one of the more affordable places that ended up selling for something like $1.4 million. And I mean, that's just mind boggling. It really is. Uh, but it demonstrates the, the, the issue, uh, just how, how severe the problem is. Yeah. You know, and again, accelerated by the pandemic, but you know, it, it really hasn't, you know, it, it, there hasn't been a, it's stabilized, but at an incredibly high level here. I mean, I guess the prices are still going up, right? It just more slowly than they were, you know, 21, 22, 23. 
Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you. I think that brings up a good point, though. I wondered, Fred, if you could talk a little bit. You know, New York is a massive, giant state. And um, and I, I'm curious about like your counterparts from some of the more maybe rural upstate areas or elsewhere. And and um, does it seem like our issues on the East End are just totally foreign to your your to other assembly people from up that region? Are they doing things differently? Well, or well, not not on. I mean, housing isn't it's not it's not just a, it's a national problem. It's you know certainly a state problem. I think it you know the values here are. Or you know, are are foreign certainly. The, the the level of the values here are foreign to people upstate. Uh, you know, and because the ability of people, you know, we we are a hundred miles from the financial center of the universe, and and you know, the ability of folks that work there to to, to buy their ability to out compete people that want to buy a, their ability as sec to buy a second home to outcompete people that want to buy a first home is not is different than than upstate but housing is an issue everywhere and actually you know for who whoever my successor is this is another part of the job there is a perception of long island upstate and there is there is especially a perception of the hamptons mm -hmm. upstate that i spend a lot of time in the Democratic conference with my members from the city, especially dissuading them of, of, of what my community is all about. You know, when I tell them that, you know, the, the majority of the students in East Hampton High School are Hispanic, that does not compute with them. Uh, when I tell them that the median family income of the five Eastern towns was actually low because it's year round in the census, that median family income on the East End is actually lower than Western Suffolk and Nassau, they don't understand that. And, uh, you know, for members upstate, they don't understand how important agriculture is out here. So, you know, part of it is just dissuading, you know, when you represent this area upstate is, is just, you know, dissuading people and and, and and getting, trying to convince them that the, a lot of these stereotypes just, you know, aren't, aren't true. And, you know, I always acknowledge that that you know that the uh, you know the 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 wealthy seasonal population of the Hamptons that that's part that's a slice of life here. It gets an outsized amount of attention because of who they are, but that you know there, there's a lot more to the area that I represent, and you know we've got traffic issues, we've got housing issues. There's poverty. Our food pantries are extremely busy. You know, that that is and, uh, you know, I, I end up being allies with a lot of people and they ask me why. And then I tell them, you know, and so it's it, that, that's part of the job also, because, you know, we this is a district that that people know 
but the, what they know about it is pretty limited uh, and is the stereotype. Brad, what, um, I, I, I think, you know, you're, you're often, you're often hailed for, you know, um, CPF is, is a major, is a major victory and now CHF and, and Pine Barrens. What, what were some of the minor victories and not, not minor, but maybe less publicized victories over the last 30 years that, that, um, that people might not talk about when, but, but that you're super proud of. Before Fred start, before you answer that, Fred, I have to just jump in real quick. Well, the first time I covered you was when you spoke at the American Legion in Sag Harbor over the Sag Harbor golf course, which the state was going to close. And you were a county legislator at the time. So it's like you succeeded, you know, and I'm. Yeah, well, the, the the golf course was it. That would probably be one of those issues. You know, w one governor came in, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to, to close it down and make it part of the overall preserve there. And then the next governor came in. It was uh, Bernadette Castro was the Parks Commissioner. She wanted to turn it into Bethpage, right? So it was. So we says, you know, it's just fine, just the way it is, and and you know, ultimately that was a battle that we won. But you know, Bill, to your point, I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's a, probably, you know, when I go and I talk to to schools and people ask, well, what is an assemblyman? And I first I tell them, well, it's not the guy who puts the the bikes together at Kmart, right? We're not the <laughs> you know assembling things. But um, uh, it is, but I, you know, I tell them there's, you know, there's three parts. Those are assembly persons. Now. Yeah. <laughs> persons. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Thank you for saving me on that one. Uh, but you know, I always say that when I go to talk to school, I said, there's really like three parts to the job. There's, we do the budget every year and it's 230 billion and we pass the laws for the state, but you know, it, it's the third part of the job is the constituent work. And you know, most people that come in contact with state government, it, it's on, on that level. You know, they have problem with problems with their unemployment insurance or, uh, you know, their, their, their kid didn't get their, their tuition assistance, their tap check or something like that. And, you know, th that I would say is what I'm most proud of. We put a lot of emphasis on constituent service uh, you know, and trying, you know, trying to help people who run into issues with the state bureaucracy. And, you know, those are not that they should be. It's not a criticism of the media. Those things are never in the newspaper, right? But we probably spend, of those three things that I described, we spend most of our time, uh, the, the majority, not the majority, but the, the most of, of, of those three things, on constituent service, and that's the thing that that uh, you know, you know, people don't see every day. Um, but you know, and and uh, you know, part of, and I've seen this more in recent years. I mean, you know, we get we get people contact us for things that are far and away beyond what state government does, where people you know look for help, and sometimes. We can help for, with those, and sometimes you know you can't. But uh, the one I liked, I always still tell this story. This was from a long time ago, and 
doesn't really qualify as constituent service, but I, I just still love this story. I, we, we, we get a, 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 a call from a, a woman uh, who basically said, there's too many reruns on TV. <laughs> what can you do about that? And it's like, oh, not a lot, you know? Uh, uh, and I, I, you know, we, we, there's not much we can do about the weather either. But, uh, but anyway, you know, trying to help people, you know, I, I, when I look at, you know, you know, people that are in government, you know, their primary motivation, you know, there's a lot of elements in, in it. And certainly, uh, you know, we all have egos in politics, that's for sure. But if your primary motivation isn't, you know, trying to help people, then you should do something else, you know, and constituent service, I think, is kind of the cornerstone of that. You, you've always had a really good relationship with with the press. And, and I think sometimes that that might be changing with some of your your newer colleagues who are a little more reticent. I, I told a, a story to Brian Cosgrove, um, you know, recently doing doing a paper talk. And it was um, I don't know if it was my first week on the job, but it was my one of my first I was really early reporting this is back in in 1999 and i have no recollection of what the story was about but um but my editor at the time said well call fred thiel and and you know and get you know get a quote from him or have you know have him you know talk about it and i called you up and it must have been clear that i had no clue what what what, what the issue was or what the state involvement was and wouldn't be the first time for us and fred not to, to get all it's Akron, but you spent an hour and a half on on the phone with me, and until um, until I had an understanding of the story that that I was writing, and um, and I'll always be forever grateful for that. But but it, it speaks it, it speaks to you and your relationship with 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 the press, and and wanting to make sure that your message was clear, and you know, and that um, you know, and that we were doing. Um, that that we were getting that information out, and I don't know if there's a question there, you know, um, other other than you know, I, I think sometimes lately we we see a reluctance on on some lawmakers to um, you know to have that same kind of relationship with the press. How has that benefited you in helping your constituents? Well, I, you know, it, it, I, I, I guess there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is. You have a job to do and I have a job to do and we're all part of this larger process and you know it you know you can make people's jobs you can make the, you know you can make it easier or harder and uh you know I, I'm, I'm not that simplistic where I, I I divide them up into who makes your job easier or harder some people in government I put in those categories who makes it easier or harder but you have a job to do I have a job to do and and listen you know, to me, uh, you know, I've got information I'm trying to get out. You're trying to, to get that information out. I mean, through the years, you know, you, you develop a lot of relationships. And that's certainly the case, I think, with all of us that are here, that we've known each other for a long time. But um, listen, you know, we, we have, uh, a, a, you know, a, I don't want to call it mutual dependence, but it's it's sort of that. I mean, you know, but again, you know, you had a job, you know, and the, the thing with, you know, the, the local newspapers, especially, um, although I'm not sure it's limited to that the way the way the, you know, the, the media has evolved. But, you know, there's a a, a fair amount of turnover in journalism. And I think with weekly papers. So, 
you know, you know, so you, you deal with new reporters a lot or, you know, and, and especially with weekly papers, sometimes they're, you know, right out of college, right out of journalism school. And, and uh, um, you know, you, it's it's mutually beneficial, I think, you know, to be helpful. And, uh, you know, and I mentioned earlier, you know, the ability, you know, on a larger basis, I think, to be effective as an elected official or a state legislator, legislator certainly, it, it it's 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 certainly about your network and then your network of people and you know th those relationships that you develop uh, are important. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one story of, of just kind of a media related story, and uh, we were working on a, a, a local issue that's been around for a long, long time that you, all of you would be familiar with. And you know, there's this graduate student from you know Columbia who's doing a doing a paper, doing a, is going to do a you know trying to do a story on this thing. And and uh, I, I, same thing with that you just described. I spent a lot of time with this guy, and somebody else who was worried working on it and and said, well, you know, guy's working for a graduate, you know, it's graduate paper. This might not even show up anywhere, right? And I said. You know, and I'm older now, but I said that guy could be Columbia. That guy could be working at CBS News or the New York Times. You know, and, and you you can say you knew him when, and when you know when you know there may be a story you know down the line. It, a lot of it's just you know building your network. I sure. mean, I just and you know reporters do that, elected officials do that. It's just a you know it's just it, it's just smart. I you know I and. So I, I think it helps you do your job, and and and, you know, and we all and we all kind of have the same goals. I mean, we we all want to you know improve yeah. improve the community. Yeah. So Bill, I can up your story on Fred. There was one night, Sag Harbor Express, and anyone who's worked at the Sag Harbor Express knows that on Wednesday at about eight thirty nine, we were still writing stories that had to go to press in about four hours because we were always really late with the paper. And I think we were had, we had some story that we needed a quote from Fred and we called up in Albany and they're like, no, nah, sorry, he's already left. He's driving back down to the island. And you know, I don't even know if we had cell phones back then. So we thought, oh, man, we're not going to get a quote from Fred Thiel. So we were just kind of toiling away writing the story without Fred's voice. And about, I think, 8.30 or 9 at the express office, Fred Thiel comes walking in the front door and says, I heard you needed a quote from me. <laughs> it's like, yes, we do sit down. So, um, yeah. So Fred actually, you know, came in person to that quote. Uh, it, 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 it's, 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 you know, I get teased about this. all. I've mentioned this before, but I get teased about this all the time. Um, my wife, uh, she's just like this. I have this quirky habit wherever we're coming from vacation or whatever, before I go home, I take a lap through main street of Sag Harbor. I don't know why it's like, I, it's like, I have to check that it's still there. Right. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so you, you would have been on my lap home probably. So it was, uh, it was easy that, you know, the, the one I, I also think of a lot is you, you'll all remember Joe Ricker who did the morning news at WLNG for, for years and years and years. And, you know, I, I get up earlier now than I used to when I was younger, but, you know, 
Joe would call the house at, at like, you know, 530, 545. So, uh, you know, he, Joe, <laughs> I, I love Joe, but he wasn't real popular in the rest yeah. of my house. And he had a booming uh, voice. Joe <laughs> because in those days it was before before cell yeah. phones and stuff like that. So the phone would ring at like 530, 545 in wow. the morning. So are you going to help us handicap your uh, replacement here? Well, fire away. Well, knowing that this podcast won't be aired till after candidacies are announced, just wondering who you think. Most likely, it'll take a week or so for us to air the podcast. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think what they're doing a um, petitions go out on February twenty eighth or thereabouts. So, um, probably the, the you know there'll be. Uh, Next week or thereabouts, you know, there'll be party convention. So, listen, I don't think it's any secret that, uh, you know, Tommy John Scavone is probably going to announce his candidacy. Um, Jay is being a little more coy. I don't think he's interested. Um, I've also heard the name of Jerry Larson, the mayor of, mm. of uh, East Hampton Village. Um, and, you know, on the Republican side, you know, my opponent from two years ago, Peter Ganley, ran, ran a pretty aggressive campaign last time. It's an open seat now. Who knows, right? So, um, you know, the Republicans have been pretty close to the vest, which I'm not so, you know, there aren't that many uh, local elected Republicans left out here, right? So, you know, the bench is, bench is a little a little thin. So, so anyway, that's kind of what I'm hearing. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if, if there's anything more. Um, are you, are you going to endorse anybody? Yeah, at some point I will, but I'm, 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 I don't have any real interest in influencing who gets nominations. I'm not going to get involved in that process. I'll, I'll let that take its course and we'll see who get, who it is. Right. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I probably will, will get involved in helping with the campaign. Steve's story hints that you, you want to still stay involved in the community. I wondered if there's any organizations or issues that you are thinking that you'll maybe focus on once you're not in an elected office. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, the things that I've been passionate about as an elected official, you know, anything in the in environment, uh you know, transportation, um, housing, you know, those kinds of things. If there's a, if there's an avenue or, you know, for, for me to, to, to do something, I certainly would be, you know, be, be interested in doing that. I, you know, I, I, I'd say, you know, getting involved with the not-for-profit sector interests me a lot more than just going and practicing law, you know, although I guess I get you. I could m meld those things together a little bit, but, uh, you know, I don't have anything, you know, specific, to, you know, um, uh, but at the moment, but, you know, th those are the kinds of things that I'm would, would be interested in. Yeah. We got a whole, we got a whole year to, uh, yeah. to keep an eye on you. Yeah. We're keeping an eye on you for one more year. <laughs> yeah. 10 plus months to go. And I, I haven't counted out how many days it is yet. I'll, Probably get to that point at somewhere somewhere along the line. So, and Steve, you and I have to chat, right? right? You and I will speak after this. Just call me on the cell. Well, you're not going to show up at his house like you did at the express. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm not sure that would go over real big. I, you know, it's one thing to be responsive. It's another thing to be a stalker, right? So, uh, <laughs> are you up at 5:30 tomorrow? I could call then. <laughs> I, I, I think right now is good. I'm gonna. T- I'll tell you one more story. It wasn't me, but it was. Uh, uh, the guy was lieutenant governor, but he was the mayor of Jamestown. He, he always used to tell this story. He had this one constituent, uh, you know, uh, James, the city of Jamestown in Western New York, they picked up the, you know, they had a guard, you know, municipal garbage collection. And, and this guy would call up the mayor, uh, you know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, you know, telling him that, you know, these garbage trucks are making way too much noise. You got to tell them to keep them down. You know, and he'd call him, you know, every couple of weeks. So one day the mayor is, um, you know, he's he's, he's got to go to Washington. He's getting ready to go, you know, go to Buffalo, get on a flight like at six in the morning. So he's up about four o'clock. So he dials the phone and calls the guy up and he says, hey, I just wanted to check. Those garbage trucks aren't making too much noise this morning, are they? <laughs> so, <laughs> that was the last time the guy called, I think. So uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right, you guys. I'll, I'll see you all soon. And Steve, we'll talk in about two minutes. Thanks, Fred. Have a good weekend. Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.